Well, good afternoon, listeners. This is the Dogs Program. The Australian Council for Defence of Government Schools. We're here on 3CR every Saturday at 12 noon. And we thank you for listening in and allowing us into your kitchen or your dining room or wherever you keep your your favourite uh, radio. But uh, every week, as you know, we have a press release. Now we're up to 881. And uh, we'll be telling you or telling, giving you information about the latest thought bubble, the integration of private schools into the public sector and why the dogs have been against it since the 1980s. Uh, after that, we also have some very interesting um, information from Finland, which we've been promising you for the last few weeks. Uh, thank you to Dale, who has done a wonderful interview with Mr Lawrence. So we'll be listening to that. And then we have a very interesting article by Jane Caro about Australian teachers' workloads and their pay. They're completely out of kilter, especially in the uh, 2020 pandemic problems. But first of all, let's go to the press release 881. The integration of private schools into the public sector has not and cannot work. Every decade or so, those who wish to compromise on the state aid issue come up with the integration of private schools within the public system thought bubble. Nothing new about it. It hasn't worked in the UK, where they've introduced it. Over there, they call some private schools public schools because there's uh, a question of, of open enrolment, which actually doesn't happen. Then over in New Zealand, it hasn't worked very well either. It only means further inequalities and the marriage of two completely opposing objectives, one public and one private, with private privilege publicly funded to the fullest extent. Dogg's position, since the idea was first introduced in Australia in the 1980s, is that public schools are public in purpose and outcome, public in access, public in ownership and control, public in funding and accountability. Private schools might be public in funding. They get billions every year now. But that's where their public service ceases. They own and control their assets, including those paid for with our money, public money. And above all, by picking and choosing their students, they are dedicated to private privilege. To include them in the public system would be a complete and improper mismatch. Yet once again... The idea is being mooted this time by the well-meaning Gonski Institute and Mr Pickley, who is himself a very, very good Catholic. A new paper published by the Gonski Institute for Education recommends integration of private schools into the public system. And you might remember that we, we dealt with this a couple of weeks ago because in, in the strange and interesting thing is that the Catholic system doesn't want it either only thing on which we're agreed. But the Gonski Institute sees this as a key solution to the increasing inequity in social segregation, which is described as a structural failure of education in Australia. Well, we've certainly got structural failures and we've certainly got inequalities, but dogs claim that uh, this is not the way to solve it. It will make it worse. And we're not the only ones who think this, by the way. The idea has been dismissed by the Chief Executive Officer of Catholic Schools New South Wales, Dallas McInerney, as a think tank clickbait fantasy. And we refer you to our press release uh, 879. 
which we read to you a couple of weeks ago. It's also been rejected by Trevor Cobalt from Save Our Schools as deepening rather than assisting in structural failure. And Jean Ely, that's me, has, a, has, has I've written to you and said that it's a complete, complete mismatch of educational systems which would undermine the public system. And Chris Bonner has criticised it as just another failure from overseas. However, Bonner also questioned Trevor Cobalt's expenditure figures, implying that private school public funding is so great that perhaps, perhaps it might be time to take them over anyway. And that's what the dogs think too. Dogs have always been against the integration of the private into the public sector and note that the economic argument for state aid has outworn its usefulness. We now pay for private schools. Let's just make them public schools and be done with it. The arguments of Cobalt, Ely and Bonner are reproduced in our press release. And Maddie is going to give you an overview of the kind of arguments that Trevor Cobalt is putting forward. We can't read you the whole lot because it would take up our whole program. But she'll give you just an idea and if you want to read the whole lot, then you can go to our website at www.adogs.info and read press release 881. Over to you, Maddie. Thank you, Jean. Yes, I'd like to expand on the Trevor Cobalt argument. I'm going to highlight some of his key arguments. Starting with the integration of private schools in the public system would deepen structural failure and it would also provide more funding for private schools. And it gives some interesting um, figures there, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Would you like to expand on those, Jane? Yes, because uh, they would demand the same funding as public schools, he claims that they would get, particularly the independent schools, could well get uh, two more two billion. He says that the, the whole lot of them would get an extra four billion a year to private schools and their more advantaged families. And says that instead of that four billion a year, um, on top of what they're getting, it would be better to bring it into the public system, which are under that, funded by six to seven billion a year at the moment anyway. Absolutely. Even though they enrol over 80% of disadvantaged students and account for about 95% of the most disadvantaged schools in Australia. So his argument that it would be an extra four billion a year to do this or to fulfil this idea, this thought bubble, has actually been questioned, I think, by Chris Bonner. But back to Maddie. Thank you, Jean. Uh, integration would increase social segregation in the public system. Uh, this paper makes the extraordinary claim that integration of private schools will help alleviate inequity in education and reduce social segregation between schools. On the contrary, it would increase social segregation and worsen the hierarchy of school status within the public system. It ignores a fundamental cause of the social segregation, namely the imbalance in school funding. Private schools are highly overfunded and public schools are massively underfunded for the tasks that they face. Another $4 billion a year in subsidies to private schools would only serve to stop the decline in enrolments in private schools. And there's a question, really, of, you know, accountability and whether or not 
even if they were asked to enrol all students, whether they would have the power to still uh, reject students because mm. there's no evidence that this would be mandatory in, in, in an integrated system at all. Otherwise, they would say, Catholics would say, we're no longer Catholic. Well, there's a question as to whether they are anyway. Anyway, back to you, um yeah, well, private schools would also insist on control of their curriculum to meet religious and other objectives. In particular, Catholic and other Christian schools in the public system would insist on being able to teach religion as part of their curriculum. And for some, that includes not teaching evolution and refusing to teach proper sex education, which is something that we touched on in our last week's program, which is integral for the future of our society to realise that they are not entitled and they need to understand what it is to be a human in this world. It's highly unrealistic, this proposal, and it fails to specify conditions for integrating private schools. Incredibly, the paper also fails to spell out any conditions for integrating private schools within the public system. Such schools should meet the same social obligations as public schools, This would involve meeting many conditions relating to funding, enrolment, staffing, curriculum, regulations, etc., etc. If they're going to be properly integrated, they should become public schools, just let's take them over. Absolutely. That's the only thing that makes sense, really. It is the only thing that makes sense. It says high inequity in other integrated school systems. A key argument used by the paper to support its recommendation is that New Zealand and three provinces in Canada, Alberta, Ontario and Saskatchewan, fully fund Catholic schools as part of the public system. In particular, it argues the lower achievement gap between advantaged and disadvantaged students in Canada compared to Australia as due to less variation in the socioeconomic composition and implies that integrated school systems are a significant factor in this. How do you feel about that, Roma? Oh, it's a shoddy, it's very shoddy, shoddy, um, especially for an academic institution because there's a lot of evidence to the contrary. Uh, and that, that, that's found in the uh, PISA results. Um, and uh, we, we encourage you to read this further because there's a lot of information in this. Absolutely. So what does uh, he think we should do? Fully fund public schools and reform funding of private schools, which... Makes sense, but also I think that all private schools should be banned and we should take them over. Or non-funded, probably at least. Or unless they should be genuinely independent. But no, um, Trevor Cobalt and the Save Our Schools group are still romancing about that possibility of a needs policy. Uh, The needs policy became a greeds policy even when it was first introduced. It's never, ever worked. And there's no evidence that the private schools will ever let it work. Because if they did, if it was genuinely a needs policy, then the Catholic schools are the best ones at crying poor and the other private schools would lose out and then we'd be back into the sectarian problems of the 19th century. Mm. So um, this is the main reason why the Catholic system in particular doesn't want the needs policy. It wants to keep... Protestant schools, the wealthy, wealthy schools in particular, on the side. And that's been the problem all along. And it's why the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. And uh, we'll have a bit of a break and then we'll go over to Sorrel, who tell, who will 
uh, outline the other arguments against um, the integrated school system idea. Councils around the country will put on disability day events and quite a few of them will not include people of colour, First Nations people and black people. So I think it's pretty cool that everyone you'll hear on air today will be a person of colour and the majority of them will be people with disabilities as well. I think when we were preparing for this show and for this day, we wanted to talk about how we could explain the concept of power from the margins and why it is that we've chosen to focus on black people, indigenous people and people of colour. And I think in, the, in one word, it's intersectionality. It's the fact that people experience forms of oppression, different forms of oppression at the same time. And most people don't realise that you can't have racial justice without disability justice and vice versa. We need to keep Radical Voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. Well, brothers and sisters, what a show of strength we've got here today. Local issues. So I'm here at the school, kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMARC. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200, 250 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminuaya Mōbohina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio, your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. Well, you're listening to the Dogs Program, the Australian Council for Defence of Government Schools on 3CR, 855 on the AM dial, if you've just tuned in. And we've got Sorrel here with us, and she's now going to tell us the other arguments against the integrated system, the one from Jeannie Lee and one from Chris Bonner from Save Our Schools. Over to you, Sorrel. All right. Thank you, Jeannie. So firstly, I'll be talking about the Jean Ely argument. Uh, Jean Ely argues that it is necessary to get back to basics and to define a public school as being distinct from a private school. It must be public in purpose and outcome, public in access, public in ownership and in control, because otherwise it cannot be public in accountability and it should be the only one eligible for public funding. Private schools only have the public funding indicia. Thank you for that. They can never be genuinely public, which I definitely agree with. If you're going to make all schools something, it should be public, not private. Yes. The Chris Bonner argument, I will now read his argument. Like others reading this, I admire Trevor's work and cite it ad nauseum, and I've stored away his points for future reference. For example, yes, the paper could have referred to options rather than solutions, even though they fell well short of being recommendations. But rather than to and fro on bits and pieces, 
I prefer to leave it up to others to read and decide. I hope the paper is widely read. It raises a host of issues that policymakers have avoided for decades. Trevor raises what it would cost in recurrent funding for government schools to enroll all students, but there are at least three calculations which produce three different costs. The first calculation. The first is the cost if governments had to meet the total recurrent expenditure, including from fee income, on non-government schools. That is the figure, around $89 billion, often cited by Catholic and independent peak groups. But it is obviously wrong, being bloated by parental contributions, which, as structural failure suggests, constitute an overinvestment. The second calculation is based on sector averages and based on the assumption that all students cost the same to teach. Hence, the cost of teaching non-government students is presumed to be the average cost of teaching government students schools. This is all, this figure has always been magnified enormously by the private schools. And if you look in the actual documents, in the actual budget documents, you'd be surprised what is counted in with the average cost of a public school student. Uh, the public library, all sorts of other institutions beside um, the actual schools are counted in with that cost. So it's grossly inflated before you begin with. And then, of course, as Bonner points out, a disadvantaged school right in the outback of New South Wales or even Victoria up near Cobar, the uh, education of those children, in fact, costs a great deal more uh, than a child in the inner city of Melbourne. So these uh, costs are grossly inflated. Back to you, Thank you for that. Um, ignoring the higher cost in government schools because of their obligation to cater to every student from every family everywhere. These are figures cited by Trevor and produce a cost of just under $4 billion. For what they measure, they are accurate but insufficient. The third is my calculation, correspondence calculation. With others, based on the likely recurrent cost to governments, if all existing non-governmental school students were funded at the same level as government school students, with similar levels of advantage and needs. The cost is much closer to zero, and when such things as economies of scale are added, governments might be financially ahead if they stopped funding non-government schools entirely. For more, see Table C in the Money Go Round, available on Chris Bonner's site, www.emediawatch.com.au. So, Chris Bonner is arguing that if all of the private school students came into the government school sector and were funded at the same amount as government school students receive, then we would be saving money. Yeah, I think that makes sense. So it is now the economic argument of the private school sector has long, long since got lots of years on it. Yeah, it seems how much money we give to private schools out of the government budget. Surely we would save money if everyone was educated in the public system. Mm -hmm. Uh, This third calculation uses ICSEA to adjust student costs and notionally transfers all non-government school students into similar government schools. It shows that the total combined government funding of non-government schools is close to and sometimes exceeds what governments spend on similar students in government schools. In other words, it would cost almost no extra recurrent public funding. This is not an argument to do it, but knowing the cost is very important. 
private schools are publicly funded almost as much as equivalent to government schools. But Jean Ely is right. This doesn't make them public schools. They don't perform the same role and have nowhere near the legal or other obligations of government schools. And they have mechanisms, including fees, which provide them with an advantage enrollment. So do some public schools. The problem is that this creates a gross injustice, including a comprehensive public schools, their principals, teachers, and especially kids. It lies behind a host of problems. It has to stop. The fact that non-government schools are almost fully funded by governments creates a problem, but it also creates an opportunity. It gives public policymakers leverage to insist on big changes to the status quo. What changes? Structural failure means the ingredients needed for a much better solution but that is only a start. It raises far more questions than answers. It's about starting a debate. Finally, on integrated school systems, my own belief is that they are also so badly flawed, and I reached this conclusion long ago after visiting them in three countries. The regulations around their operations are too loose. They bend or break rules, especially regarding enrollment and fees. Yes, well, thank you very much, Sorrel. So that's it for integration of schools. And we'll have a break, and then we'll listen to Dale talking to Michael Lawrence about the Finnish education system. You can see that this country is covered in the blood of Aboriginal people, and the length and breadth of it. Australia is a part of an undeclared war and a secret invasion. And it began 250 years ago this year. Now, we have a country that's built on lies, deceit, fraud, propaganda and race hatred indoctrination. Now it's been 250 years of us being oppressed in our own land. Brutally. We might be oppressed but we understand what freedom is and we fight for it every day and we've resisted this occupation since day one. And I predict colonialism, capitalism, imperialism is going to get knocked out cold by about mid this year. Tricia your station in struggle and solidarity. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. Welcome back to the Dogs Program. And now we're going to go to part two of our chat with Mick Lawrence, where last week we were discussing the autonomy and flexibility that teachers have to work with students, to engage them enthusiastically with education, compared with our standardised NAPLAN results-based curriculum here in Australia. Here Mick discusses the professional development sessions that he's set up in conjunction with the university in Finland uh, for all teachers in Australia to take part in with a view to improved best practices. Now, over to our chat. It's such a cultural difference, isn't it? It's a real cultural shift to Australia where there's a lot of teacher bashing in the media and also not having autonomy and not having that flexibility to work with the students that you have. It does put the student in a position of of deciding, oh, I'm not good at this subject because I didn't do good on this exam. And that's got to have some kind of, negative mental health impact on students as well? Oh, undoubtedly, undoubtedly. Those those students are aware that, that they're not going well. And one of the things we do here too is schools are ranking 
every student in a particular year level, and I've seen these lists, they'll have, you know, if there's 100 Year 7 students, they'll have them ranked from 1 to 99 or whatever for each subject sometimes. And it just makes me scratch my head and think, why? How does this help the students? And, well, you know, it just doesn't, doesn't help anyone. At all. And in Finland, they just, you know, they they don't understand why you would do that. One of the things that I remember talking about schools and the differences between them, a couple of the schools that I went to on my first visit there, I wanted to get, because I, I had no context on these schools, I'll just take, said, hey, we're going to, I'm going to take you to this school and that school. I said to the teachers, what's one or two, I said, is this a good school? You know, because in Australia, that would be, you know, you, you'd be asking, is this school in a good socioeconomic area to get good results? And they just looked at me strangely and said, in Finland, every school is a good school. Once again, it sort of put me on the back foot and I th- you just think, wow, that's such a, an obvious and sensible answer that every school is a good school. And one of the things that I, I always say about this competition thing is if you think about, say, say sports or whatever, you might initially think, well, well, competition in sport improves sport, surely. But when was the last time you saw the coach from one, one AFL club go to one of the other clubs to give them some tips and help them out with a few things that they've worked out lately to, to help them win games and be better at their, their sport? It doesn't work like that. <laughs> it's, the competition, in fact, encourages the more successful places to keep their secrets of success in-house, basically, because if everyone else finds out about it, then they'll lose their edge over them. This is one of the the sort of problems with the the competitive system that we're encouraging. The government seems to think that it's something like NAPLAN, that somehow you can shame these schools, students and teachers who, you know, those students are obviously, you know, not trying hard. Those teachers are obviously not, not serious. So if we shame them, surely they'll, they'll lift their game and get a lot better. And the evidence is non-existent that, that that works. I think for schools to do a complete turnaround is very, very rare. And I've never heard of one that, that said that the turnaround was because they went poorly in that plan and everyone felt so bad about it that they all lifted their game. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I think also in Australia, we're automatically behind the eight ball because we start at a point where how much does it cost to go to this school? And the, the idea of paying for education is just not culturally present in Finland. No, all education is free, right, from preschool right through to you know university level. And there's an English newspaper in Finland I remember reading a story about it, it was last year or the year before, but one of the Finnish parliamentarians had asked the question, they'd said, why are we paying money for international students to study here in Finland when they're not, fr- they're not from this country? Yeah, we're just wasting money. Because you, you, you could go there, you or I could go to Finland to study at university level and it would be free. And anyway, so the, the response given in, in the parliament, and this was all reported in the paper, was, uh, someone had got back to them and said, well, we've, when we've done uh, research into this area, we've found that it was something like 60 or 70% of those students stayed in the country for at least the next five or ten years, therefore getting their knowledge that they'd, that they'd learned while getting their degrees and postgraduate degrees and so on, giving that knowledge to Finland and Finland's economy and so on and benefiting Finnish society. I just thought, you'd, you'd never hear that in Australia. They'd just think you were insane if you were to say something like that. It really makes it obvious just how voter-based 
funding is in Australia. The coalition definitely knows who its base is with Catholic and independent schools. And it becomes so overt that it's really just paying for votes. Yeah, I, I had no problem with a school in Sydney last year that opened up an arts centre that, you know, had a, I don't know, I think it was a $30 million arts centre or something or $40 million. had an orchestra pit and things like that. I have no problem with them having that as long as all the other schools get it too. Well, yeah, and as long as the taxpayer doesn't foot the bill while public schools are going completely without. Well, that's right. I mean, I, I'm not saying that schools shouldn't have art centres worth $30 million, but every school should have an art centre like that is what I'm saying. It just yeah. should be fair for everybody. It was Parsi Salberg wrote an opinion piece. Do you recall that one? Is that the e- epidemic that we're failing to address? Yeah, yeah exactly. The, the, the basic premise of that was that the way we got through the academic was by, epidemic was by following the science and why aren't we doing that with education? And, yeah, that was a very insightful piece. That's interesting stuff. There was a response written to that by a Catholic education educator arguing with Parsi, but then another Catholic educator in another newspaper wrote a reply to that one, and he basically pointed out that it's a very Catholic thing to do to look after those people who aren't as well off as as the best in society are. And uh, I thought, yeah, and this is this is the thing. I don't think we need to get rid of, essentially, religious schools and things like that, but we just need them all to be on an equal footing, if you know what I'm saying. You, it can, you know, I, I can see that in this country to try and remove the, the private schools would just be, a, um, you know, an absurdly difficult thing to do, but we just need to see everybody on an equal footing, I think. And it's not so much the schools being on an equal footing, it's that everybody, every citizen in this country has an equal access to good education. Hmm. And that's what they have in Finland is everybody has equal access to excellent, the best possible education in the world. And nobody has got the slightest reason for for thinking that that shouldn't be the case. And they, they don't understand why we would do anything else, in fact, because they see it as as being to the benefit of everybody in society. Do you want, they would say, do you want Australian society, the Australian economy, do you want these things to be good? You know, the answer is an obvious yes, it's a rhetorical question. And they would then say, well, why aren't you making your education system as good as possible? And this is the kind of question that, that it's very difficult to answer. When the Gonski report was done, it made all these recommendations along the lines of what we've just been saying, but then a compensation fund was put in place to assist any school that lost any money in, um, through the implementation of the, the new funding model. So, in fact, you... You said, look, we're going to give you back the money that we took away from you because we don't want you to be disadvantaged at all. Mm. And, you know, when you're already a school that's, um, you know, one of the, the rich, wealthiest ones in the country, in the world too perhaps, you don't really need to be compensated for that couple of million dollars you lost for the, because of the Gonski report, I don't think. No, absolutely not. You know, it's, it's that's a very difficult thing to address. I do think... There is no other country in the world that, that throws as much money at non-government schools. Most other countries, the government throws the majority of their money at the government's schools for obvious reasons. And I think that sort of money that gets thrown into conservative um, schools in Australia is one of the things that causes problem that we have with education because those schools 
whilst their results haven't been improving, they will continue to use really conservative teaching practices, et cetera, et cetera, because they're getting students coming towards them in, in record numbers because the government schools are literally falling apart because of the lack of funding they're getting. And so these conservative schools are getting students and money thrown at them. They're looking and thinking, well, why would we change what we're doing? And the government schools, it's awkward for them to try and change what they're doing because they're just struggling to to keep their doors open and, and you know, keep the, the heating or the cooling going in their classrooms and things like that. They're really doing it tough too. Absolutely. Well, as you would be aware with Gonski, you know, they came up with the SRS, the School Resourcing Standard, and it's been legislated that government schools will only ever get 90% of their SRS and independent and Catholic schools get 110 or 115% of the SRS. And the SRS isn't an aspirational, like, oh, in a perfect world, this is what it would be. It's the actual bare minimum to run a school. And we in Australia have it legislated that public schools will only ever get 90% of that. So there's a real culture that gets continued within Parliament mm. of us and them. And that's, that's I think, creating the, the cultural issues that are obvious when it comes to talking about teachers and talking about school environments. Almost every school in the country, well, every school in the country, is getting enormous amounts of money from the government. And you think, why aren't they basically using world's best practice? Because how can you take you know, millions of, of government dollars for education and justify not using the best practice in the world, the sort of thing that Finland is, is using to get those results? Because any other industry other than education, you could not justify using anything but world's best practice, unless perhaps the oil industry or something like that is another example. And this, this is the thing, isn't it? There's... There's, there's a whole lot of reasons that most of us are starting to get a, a good handle on now as to why governments and so on are trying to, to keep the oil industry afloat and stop greener energy and things like this sort of coming into the market. But if there's, if there's reasons like that that are behind the, the education malay, as I would call it, that is the reluctance to move to better practice and so on, I, I don't like to think what the motivations could be for, for for government and so on to do that, why would they not want this, the country to be as well educated as possible? It, you know, it's it's not a nice. The, the possible answers for it aren't, aren't something um, that I like to ponder on too much because they're not. Most of them aren't very nice yeah. things. The, fi, the, fin, the Finnish people understand that the more of the population that is well educated and, and enjoying education and has a positive attitude to education, the more successful that country will be. And, and they punch well above their weight for a country of five million in the world economy. As far as, you know, Europe goes, Finland does really, really well because they're a smart country. And I've, the government has actually used slogans like that occasionally, but they haven't backed up that rhetoric by putting money into to making Australia a smarter country through education. And, you know, the, the school funding thing and the, the practice thing are two different, different things. I'm running a, got a, um, a professional development program that we've developed, I've developed with a, a university in Finland. 
This is really interesting. I'd like our listeners to know more about this. This is an opportunity for us on the ground to actually affect change. So please. Yeah, I thought I thought it's pretty easy for me to to whinge about you know Australia's education thing, but it's it's a lot makes a lot more sense to do something about it. So with the University of Applied Sciences in Tampere, we put together a PD program for Australian teachers and schools where basically the place that teaches the best teachers in the world, those people have made their time and some of their resources available so that we can go into schools and tell teachers about the the things that Finnish teachers are doing, the best practices that they've come up with. Because every Finnish teacher is is doing research. They're they're doing research like university lecturers and so on are supposed to be doing. They're experimenting, trying to find better ways of doing things. So we're trying to get that into Australian schools. And the the last hour of that is a direct cross to Finland, where it's about 7 a.m. in the morning, but it's, it's 3 or 4 in the afternoon here. But it's a chance for the Australian teachers who, having learnt about Finnish stuff all day long, have a chance to actually ask some Finnish educators, what about my, you know, I do this or that, or what about my subject, what can I do here? But they get to get some instant Q&A with Finnish educators on that. And it's never been done before, and I just think it's a wonderful opportunity for Australian educators from prep to 12, just a chance to learn some of the, the things that are, Finnish educators use that make their classrooms work so well because there's a whole host of things other than the few things I've mentioned so far. So, yeah, anyone that's interested in that, there's there's a Facebook group for it. The What Australia Can Learn From Finnish Education group? Yes, that, that's the Facebook group. And the professional development program is called 21st Century Education Trends. And there's uh, a website under my name, nicklawrence.com, where they can find out more about that. There's information on YouTube. If they look up 21st Century Education Trends, there's a video on YouTube for it. Yeah, they could find me on LinkedIn, and, and there's links to the website and so on through that. But lots of the ways they can find out. There's some schools in um, central New South Wales that are doing the program in the first uh, couple of days of Term 2. This Schools have been reading Parsi Salberg stuff, they've read my stuff, and they're really keen to, to make a real difference to their schools. They've said the stuff they've done already has made a big difference, and they're really keen to, to try and change the culture of their region, and they're getting the other schools around them interested in it as well. That's uh, that's what I've been doing rather than just whinging to people like you. <laughs> and this is the thing, this kind of change... It, it could be difficult and hard to make the government to make a change at government level, but educators, teachers, principals, and so on can make changes now, right now, within their schools and so on, within the frameworks that exist. They can make positive changes um, that will really turn turn their school community and their school culture upside down. They really can make a big difference. So much of what Finland is doing is able to be applied here in Australia. As I found out teaching in the last few years in one of the most conservative schools you could imagine, I was still able to use a lot of this stuff to make a huge difference to the students in the class. And I could recall having, at the start of the year, I'd have the parents come in for a short meeting. Uh, we'd have a parent information thing, and I'd get the parents in there, and I'd tell them about my Finnish experiences and what I was going to do. And there wasn't a single parent that said, look, I'd rather you just did the standardised stuff and worry about marks. Every parent was totally, totally just over the moon to hear someone talking about their students' interests and passions and about them enjoying their education and so on. Parents just love that. 
and the students do too. And this is where it can really change a school's culture. And this is why Finland does so well in in the uh, PISA tests and things like that, because the students are enjoying education. One of the books I did was on Midnight Oil, the band. I wrote 150,000 words about them. I've often said to people, you don't write 150,000 words about something because someone told you you have to do it. You've got to have a passion for it. And this is, this is what this is about. It's about developing a passion for learning and enjoyment for it. And humans can do extraordinary things when they have a passion for something. And that's the bit that we leave out of Australian education. We forget all about that passion and, uh, and somehow think that that kids will just do well anyway if we just put enough pressure on them and make enough threats and so on. And using those techniques, even if we get them through, they're going to be so sick and tired of education and have such a poor attitude about it that they're going to get as far away from it as they can for the rest of their days. Mm. And that's failed education system, I think. Yeah, I'd have to agree. If uh, I could just get you to tell our listeners again where they can find more information about these professional development workshops. Sure, sure. The Facebook group is um, the same um, title as my book, What Australian Education Can Learn from Finland. And the website is nicklawrence.com. com. That's that's pretty easy to do. And there's there's a whole lot of stuff about that on there. We're looking to get as many schools in because it's just such a unique opportunity to have this university in Finland keen to, to work with us on this. This university has an international department and they go out to about 50 different countries with things, so they're really keen to spread the word about their education system and help us out as much as they can. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Have a look at Mick's website. That's micklawrence.com and you'll find a bit, find out a little bit more about the books he's written as well as the professional yeah. development session. The books in shops and can be ordered from shops or from Melbourne Books directly too. And the book is called Testing 321, What Australian Education Can Learn from Finland. Thank you very much for talking with us today. My pleasure. Thank you, Dale. Thank you very much. And we were just listening to a chat I had with Mick Lawrence uh, about what the Australian education system can learn from the Finnish education system and from Finland. And there's a Facebook group you can go to, which is titled What Australian Education Can Learn from Finland, as well as you can go to Michael Lawrence's website, which is micklawrence.com. That's L-A-W-R-E-N-C-E. The Black Lives Matter movement is not going away here or overseas. It gives me hope seeing the numbers of people that turn out to these Invasion Day demonstrations in Melbourne. It gives me the understanding that we will win, folks. We will succeed! Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. So it's up to us, the people. We need a treaty in this country. We need the end to the war in this country. 
And the only way we can do that is through a peace treaty. Not the one you see in Victoria, not the one you see in Queensland, not the one you see in the Northern Territory, because they talk treaty and still lock our people up. They still kill our people. They still desecrate our land and our water. A treaty means peace. A treaty means equality and a treaty means justice. Thank you. Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. We've got a common enemy. The same government that locks up these refugees just behind us here at the Park Hotel is the same government that's going for our rights, trying to attack the very limited gains that casuals have. And so when union activists take up the cause of refugees amongst their fellow workers, it's not an act of charity. It's about building workers' united self-defence mechanism, understanding that we're all part of the same battle. Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. For three years, teachers have had their qualifications, their pay, their pensions and their working conditions attacked relentlessly by this government. I'm a proud product of a government-funded primary school education and of a government-funded secondary school education. Australia is one of the richest and luckiest countries in the world and there's no reason whatsoever why we can't have the very best public schools in the world. It's simply not good enough that kids with disability miss out. Our education is not for profit! Our education is not for profit! You're listening to The Dogs, the defence of government schools on 3CR. Yes, well, usually at this time, we have a good news story. But there's not too many of them around. There was a very nice one about young people up um, in, the Val- in the Yarra Valley at a, at a public school who are out with their vines, um, picking grapes, having a lovely time. But in The Guardian in the last week, Jane Caro wrote about what has been happening in our public schools um, with our teachers. They have been grossly overworked and they have kept things going for our children. Uh, but the time has come for us to actually recognise how important they are to our society and pay them accordingly. So um, I'm going to hand over to Oliver now and he will tell you something uh, about what Jane Carroll has to say about our teachers. Thank you, Jane. Far too many of our teachers especially when they are young and idealistic, are so afraid of being seen as a slacker, they drive themselves into the ground. Just as the work of teachers has become increasingly complex and demanding, the status of the profession has fallen as a whole, even with their employers. 
My daughter, who is a teacher, believes that most people think that there are only two sorts of teachers. The martyr, who works every hour available and gives it all to their students to the point of exhaustion, and the slacker, who does as little as humanly possible while counting the days to the next holidays. These stereotypes are nonsensical, of course, but they are also actively damaging. Far too many of our teachers, especially when they are young and idealistic, are so afraid of being seen as a slacker, they drive themselves into the ground. Such stereotypes are convenient for our leaders, however, because they allow them to both praise and demonize teachers at the same time. By lauding the exceptional teacher and or school, they, they can imply all the others are falling short, neatly letting themselves off the hook. Worse, the stereotype has also influenced the profession's view of itself. Teachers routinely go above and beyond the call of duty, both for fear of being judged slacker and out of genuine concern for the increasingly complex needs of the students they see in front of them. Research by the University of Sydney in 2018 showed teachers in New South Wales were working an average of 54 hours a week and principals 62 hours. If that's an average, that means many educators are working much longer. Professor Parsi Salzberg, once a leader of the famed Finnish education system, now deputy director of the Gonski Institute and a New South Wales public school parent, noticed immediately how much longer teachers worked here and how much time our kids spend in classrooms. He has announced he is on a mission to reduce the hours both students and teachers spend in formal lessons. He wants more time for play, creativity, and collaboration. I can hear the sighs of relief from both teachers, students, and there is a renewed focus on this problem thanks to a new report. Professor Jeff Gallup, an ex-premier of Western Australia and past minister for education, chaired the just-released Gallup Review into New South Wales public school teachers' workload and remuneration which was commissioned by the New South Wales Teachers Federation. And what were his recommendations? He found that things were pretty bad this Gallup wife, didn't he? But what, what did he end up recommending? In the face of this evidence, the Gallup Review has made a number of recommendations. The first is that teachers' salaries should be increased between 10 and 15% to recognise the increased skills and responsibilities needed to do this highly complex job. This would also help with teacher retention and recruitment to avoid looming shortages. Another is that an additional two hours of release from face-to-face teaching should be provided to make time for collaboration, planning and preparation, especially in primary schools. Exhausted teachers, stressed parents, anxious students and the rest of Australia will be watching New South Wales government's response with great interest. Yes, well that's very interesting. Uh, there were quite a lot of uh, comments in The Guardian uh, this week uh, on this article. Uh, Dale will tell you what some of them were. Over to you, Dale. Thank you, Jean. Yes, uh, Grubby Knees says, The issue is not young teachers afraid of being seen as slackers. The issue is management and school systems loading an increasing number of required paperwork tasks with no acknowledgement of the time it takes to complete them. My previous principal was a fan of telling us to work smarter, not harder, while at the same time adding something she required us to do for the next meeting that would take 1 to 15 minutes per student. Doesn't sound that bad, except with with 30 students, 
15 minutes each is a whole day's extra work in a job where almost nothing in your work week can be shifted to next week while you do the pressing new administration. The call for more release time is very welcome, but I don't actually think pay is what attracts or drives people away from the profession. It's the workload. And then Michael Sidney says, there may not be two types of teachers, but there are two types of commentators, those who are or know teachers and those who don't. The latter have no idea of the hidden work done by teachers and confuse class time with their working hours. One of my children is a primary school teacher who has mostly taught in disadvantaged areas. A typical day, once you add meetings, interacting with parents, lesson prep, endless make-work reporting to satisfy bureaucrats and principals seeking promotion and writing reports on yet another incident driven by the socioeconomic conditions of the students was easily 10 hours. And then at least half each weekend and a good part of the two weeks breaks. And all this as a casualised temporary contract teacher with no guarantee of ongoing work. I wonder that so many of them stay, not that so many leave. Then Helsinki says, our local philosophy group discussed education as a topic a few days ago. Several teachers, including a principal, felt that expectations of teachers are enormous. Education is now an industry and the overall creep of performance indicators in almost all jobs is dictatorial and hence suffocates initiative. Learning requires creativity. Freedom to think and play stimulates ideas. And some of those uh, sentiments we visited while we were talking to Michael Lawrence uh, and that was that is addressed in the Finnish system giving teachers more autonomy and uh, the ability to to cater uh, to students individual needs and passions. I find that very interesting yes I noticed you know years ago when I was a teacher that the more I knew about my subject um, you know, the more qualified I was, um, the greater autonomy I wanted. And in fact, I tended to take, uh, because, um, you can do all sorts of things in your classroom, um, if you've got the, if you've got the, um, the get up and go, but you still need to have the get up and go. Unfortunately, if, if teachers are overworked, to get up and go, got up and went. <laughs> and that happens, the burnout happens very easily. Yeah. Absolutely. And the ability to be creative uh, around teaching um, students to uh, to change a lesson, to engage a child with their passion, you know, it changes the whole nature of education. It changes uh, how people, how children perceive education and makes makes them more likely to be interested in education instead of this standardised testing that has children labelling themselves as, oh, I'm not good at maths because I didn't do well on this standardised test. And so it automatically puts up a block between the child and the very idea of further education. Indeed, yes. Are there any more interesting bits? I think we're almost out of time, Jean. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, it's been a very, very interesting uh, hour for us here at the Dogs. Uh, We hope that we have also 
uh, you have also found it as interesting. But our time is gone, so it's bye for now. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.